This is episode 548 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. The problem today in our culture is not the increasing darkness we see, but it's the ever-diminishing light in us, in believers. Darkness is defined as the absence of light, and when light appears, it immediately vanquishes darkness without a fight and without a struggle. But there's more. Scripture tells us that Christ is light, and therefore, as being in Christ, so are we. We are children of light, and Ephesians 5 tells us we are commanded to walk as children of light. And the Scripture, of course, describes the enemy as darkness. So it appears the problem today with encroaching darkness is us, those who are light, yet hide our light from the world. I mean, why do we do that? Maybe it's because we fear the darkness, or maybe we fear persecution of the world, like being canceled or mocked or deplatformed or whatever the darkness tries to do to conceal the light. But no matter, we have a mandate from our Lord to let our light shine before men. Remember that? The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. So what are we to do? How can we live as light in the world? That's a great question, and the scriptures have even a greater answer. Should join with us today as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Last week, we talked about regeneration, and so, uh, again, I felt led to do that. We talked about the great deception about people who think they're saved and not saved. I know that from personal experience. If you remember my testimony, I walked down the aisle when I was 12 years old. I believed all the historical facts about Jesus. I believed, I believed he was the son of God. I believed he died on the cross for our sins. I believed everything I was told by every Baptist preacher I ever sat under. Everything. And I wanted to get saved. I mean, I did. Why wouldn't I? I mean, it's like when you're offered something like that, why wouldn't you want to take advantage of that? And so I went down the aisle and I prayed the sinner's prayer and I recited historical facts about Jesus. And I was baptized a week later that evening at the evening service. And when I remember when I was going under the water to be baptized, I was more concerned about making sure I blew the right amount of bubbles out of my nose, that I didn't get choked on the water than I was anything else. All these old ladies came and hugged me and welcomed me to the kingdom of God, but I knew, I knew something was different. I knew it didn't take. I knew I wasn't saved. I knew I was the same person. And every time I shared my doubts with somebody, they would refer back to, oh, no, you, you prayed the prayer, right? I prayed the prayer. You were baptized, right? I was baptized. Son, you're saved. The Satan's just trying to rob you of the joy of your salvation. That's just Satan working in your heart. What you need to do is just rebuke that and move on down the road. Not one person took my concerns about my salvation seriously. I had faith, but it was non-saving faith. I had a form of godliness, but I had no power in my life. I was converted and I placed faith, but regeneration did not take place. And for those of you I've shared this with, which is probably most everybody here, this went on till I was um, 28 years old for almost 15 years. Uh, When I got older, I uh, started realizing maybe it's just the Baptists. So I started going to different churches. I went to Assembly of God and Church of God. I went to um, 
you know, more formal churches. I went to non-denominational churches. I went to charismatic churches, and I would ask the pastor about salvation. They would tell me exactly the same thing, same thing I'm telling you. You know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Just confess your sin, son. Place your faith in his, him, son, and everything will be fine. And I did all of that, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. And I would, you know, we'd go to church, and I had my church life, and then when I would come home, I had my home life, and it would, they would totally different. They were, I was like living these two lives and nothing seemed to, to work. And I got more um, depressed. I almost got to, we got apathetic. I got to the point that I couldn't take it anymore. And so I remember one day after Krista was born, she was just a little, little kid, that uh, I was downstairs in my uh, little den area we had in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and I had a really serious conversation with the Lord. And I said, look, I, I can't take this anymore. I mean, I know I'm not saved. And I thought maybe I was the chief of sinners. I thought maybe that God loved everybody else, but not, not me. I knew the testimonies of people I had heard, hundreds of them, about true salvation. I saw the change in their life. I knew it was real, but it, it just didn't happen to me. I couldn't figure out what it was. I couldn't I had no idea what I was doing wrong. As much faith as I had, I placed in the Lord. And I graduated from college. I went to seminary because I figured I know I'm lost and I know God had a call on my life, but I'm going to go to seminary because obviously God must be there because everybody there wants to be a, you know, a man or woman of God. So I went to seminary and I'm sure he was there. I just never ran into him. Ran into her, brought her into my life, and spent the next couple years making her more like me than either one of us being like Christ. I'm sitting in my den, and I was at the end of myself, and I told the Lord, look, I mean, I'm going to ask you one more time. And if, if, if you don't want to save me, if, if I'm, and I know anything about election or all that kind of stuff, I was just a zygote. And I said, if, 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 I don't, if, if it's not for me, okay. I'm willing to accept that, but I got to know now. If you're real, you have to reveal yourself to me. And I, I surrendered my life to the Lord to the best I knew how. I asked him to come into my life, and I felt prompted to read the book of John. Okay, like I hadn't done that before. So I start reading the book of John. You know, starts talking about John the Baptist coming, and, you know, he wasn't the light, but he was proclaiming the light, the gospel of salvation coming to the whole world. Okay, got to John chapter 3, and all of a sudden, the words that I was reading became real to me. I, and I've shared this with you before. Um, I'm, I'm sitting in the den, and as I'm reading this encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus, it was almost like it was played out in front of me like I was watching a movie. And there's conversations going on between Nicodemus and, and Jesus. And I was like standing right behind Nicodemus's right shoulder, just looking over his shoulder, watching what was going on. So this Nicodemus guy comes to Jesus at night and he asks him a couple questions. And, you know, my good master, nobody can do the things that you do unless God's with them. And okay. And Jesus had none of that. And he turned around as I'm reading the passage played out in front of me. It's like Jesus looked at Nicodemus and says, you need to be born again and pointed right over Nicodemus's shoulder to me and said, so do you. How? I can't tell you the frustration I felt. How? I mean, I've been asking for 15 years. How does someone become born again? I'm reading the passage, and the dialogue is following you know, completely. I mean, you're, you're a 
teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? The Spirit's like wind. It comes and, and you can't tell where it's going, but, but you can tell where it's been there. And, and you must be born again. I mean, flesh, what do I do? Do I do like crawl inside my mom's womb? Is it a physical thing? Is it a spiritual thing? I mean, what do I do? And there was this change that took place. And the change I later discovered as I reflected on it, the change took place because I received Christ on his terms and not on mine. I didn't even know I had terms. I didn't even know I was, I was you know, offering a bargain to Jesus and he'd be lucky to have me. I didn't, I didn't know any of that, but I realized at that particular point in time that being born again means to be put to death. I have to be dead. And someone who's dead has no feelings. Someone who's dead has no agenda. They have no plans. They have no sincerely held convictions. They don't have things that they want. They're a corpse. They're a dead corpse, lifeless. And then all of a sudden, Jesus raises us up, born again into a newness of life. And so therefore, as you read more of the passage, everything about Jesus becomes real to me. His desires are my desires. My greatest pleasure in life, the calling in life, is not to do what I want to do, but to do what he wants to do. Born again, not made better. All I wanted Jesus to do is make my life better. And it wasn't until that day that previously I had refused to let that happen that he changed me. Now, as I studied more of the scripture, I realized that what really took place was regeneration. That it was no longer just a mental thing where I'm placing some faith in historical facts of Jesus and I'm acting like I'm converted to some sort of worldview or some sort of religion outside of myself trying to adhere to a bunch of laws in the flesh that I can't. Instead, regeneration took place where this transformation made me a brand new person. Karen will tell you, and I know I've shared this with you before, Karen will tell you that I spent the next six months just apologizing for sins that I committed um, against her, mostly lying, telling her things that were one way and really weren't the other way. And I remember, I remember the very next morning, the very next morning, there was this, and I don't even remember what it was now, it's so trivial to think about it, it was big to me. There was this thing I told her that really wasn't true. And uh, I was so afraid she was gonna find out about it and know it wasn't an affair or anything like that. It was just stupid financial stuff or something I did with my brother or just, I don't even know. And the fact is I was praying that morning first day as a believer. I said, Lord, is there anything that I need to do to, to open up the floodways of the Spirit and allow me to have a closer, intimate, more relationship with you? And the first thing he said was, you need to tell Karen about this. Oh, gosh. Can you pick something else? No. Unless this is handled, we don't go any further. Do you remember? We're driving to work. I pulled off the side of the road and I'm clenching, clenching the steering wheel as hard as I can. I said, I need to tell you something. And when I tell you this, you're probably going to want to divorce me. You're not going to love me anymore, but I have to tell you because of what happened to me last night with Christ. Remember, she was not on top of her game spiritually. She was down like I was and this transformation had taken place. She thought I had an affair or something. When I finally told her, her response was, do you remember? That's it? had me scared, but it was this thing. I, just nothing I wanted to do other than just throw off this bondage of these sins and lies and character traits that I had because I was changed. A regeneration took place. There was nothing about the old life that appealed to me. We talked about that last week. And so I would assume 
the fact that you're here today, that either you have been regenerated or you, if you weren't, after last week's message, you took care of that to make sure you were regenerated, or if neither one of those took place, you just must be a glutton for punishment coming back again today. But the fact is, I'm assuming that everyone in here has a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if so, this is what happens. You know, we experience this joy, this wonder of having a relationship with him, and we find out we have enemies. We find out that the world wants to crush us, the world wants to destroy us, that that, the, the world wants nothing to do with us. And when we read the scripture, we find out that that's what we're promised. All who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Jesus says that they did that to the master of the house. What do you think they're going to do to you? And so we understand that. We live in America where we don't have overt persecution, at least we did when I got saved many years ago, like we do now. But we feel abandoned sometimes. We feel like we're behind enemy lines. We see the glories of Christ, and yet we struggle. Same thing that happens to other people happens to us. And the reason is, is because we're looking at life from our vantage point and not from his. You know, God gets glory when he he takes us through situations that even lost people go through. We get cancer, they get cancer. We, We lose children, they lose children. We lose jobs, they lose jobs. We have financial problems, well, so do they. And the fact is, is we're not guaranteed our best life now. Matter of fact, this is our worst life now. But when we go through the same things they go through, we do it with joy. We do it with a purpose. We do it not realizing that we're, you know, defeated and, and whacked out because, you know, greater is the world out there than anything living in us. Instead, we're supposed to be more than victorious, more than overcomers. But many times we aren't. And it's because we focus on life just from our vantage point. I've shared this with you before. If you play chess, which to me is the greatest game ever, if you play chess, it's a total mental game. You, you have a group of, of uh, pieces, and they have a group of pieces, and we're all following the same rules, and there's a attack and counterattack, and there's strategy and stuff of that nature. But if you were a particular chess piece, like a pawn, the most disposable of them all, the weakest of them all, and you looked up, and standing in front of you was the queen and the king, queen, the most powerful piece on the board, and all you saw was where you are and what's in front of you, which is the queen, and you would look up, you would be devastated. I have no shot. I'm about to get killed. I have this force in front of me, this satanic force in front of me that's greater than anything, and he's coming down on me, and I'm just this little measly pawn that belongs to the king of kings and the lord of lords, but I don't even know where he's at right now. I know I'm just stuck out in the middle, me and doom, and it would absolutely lead you to depression. Not going to get any better until, if you've ever played chess, you move your vision a little higher up on the chessboard. Now, not just seeing my square and him or her, the queen, now all of a sudden I see a couple squares around me. Now, wait a second. 
I'm beginning to see the logic of the person playing the game behind me. You know, I've got a bishop over here and a rook over here, and I'm well protected. And as it goes up even higher, I begin to see the game plan of the master, uh, or the grand master, where I'm leading maybe this charge is going to lead into a, a checkmate. And, and all of a sudden, when you began to look at life from the vantage point of the grand master chess master, then where you're at on the chessboard doesn't really become overwhelming. Because greater is he living in you than he who lives in the world. Here's the statement I heard this week. And I haven't been able to get it out of my mind because it is so true. Especially in the world in which we live right now. The problem today is not the increasing darkness. It is not the power of Satan. It is not the world systems. The problem today is the ever-diminishing light. We focus on darkness when we should be focusing on light. If you think about it, darkness is defined as the absence of light. Whenever light is gone, darkness comes. Whenever, darkness, whenever light appears, darkness is immediately vanquished without a struggle. If this room had you know, darkened windows, and it was super dark in here, and I turned out all the lights, and there was no light in here at all, it would obviously be dark. You know, darkness is the absence of light. And the minute I started turning on the lights, let's say this one first, there's not a battle that goes on. It's not like the darkness says, no, go back into that bulb. And the bulb says, no, I'm coming out. And there's this fight that goes on, and we're watching this to see who's going to win, the darkness or the light. The darkness is dispelled by the intensity and brightness of the light. The brighter the light, the more powerless the darkness is. And as I turn on the rest of the lights, all of a sudden there's no darkness at all. It works exactly the same way in our life because Christ is light. God is light. He lives in you, and so therefore you are exactly the same. You are light of him. We're commanded, and again, I'm probably not going to share these verses with you today, uh, but you're commanded to walk as children of light. And the enemy, in contrast to light, is always described as the opposite of that, darkness. Darkness. We look up into the sky at night and we see stars. What are those stars? Light. Light, and they shine through for who knows how many light years away to illuminate through the darkness the fact that they are more powerful than any darkness around us. And it works exactly the same way spiritually. In John chapter 1, Jesus is described as someone who would bring light. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to what? To Christ. But Christ is described as light, the light. He's coming as a witness, John the Baptist, to describe Christ as the light so that everybody would believe. John was not the light, Christ was, but he was sent to bear witness to that light. Why? Here was John's message. The true light, which was giving light to every man, was coming into the world. That the world is engulfed in darkness. The world is engulfed in flesh and evil and Satan and men doing the things that they want to do. But now light is coming into that darkness. And when the light does, it dispels the darkness completely. John continues here. 
This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God has given us a message, and that message is what we need to tell you, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins. Yes, but that's not what's included here, that he will, uh, he's preparing a place in heaven for you right now. Yes, but that's not what John wanted to communicate. The simple message was this, God is light. Light. How much light? I mean, Little light, big light, searchlight, sun, moon. I mean, what kind of light? So much so that in him, you were in him. There was no darkness at all. So if God is light and God lives in me, then what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to act? The sanctification verse. If we say we have fellowship with him, who we just defined as light, and walk in darkness, walk according to this God of this age, we lie. About what? About walking in darkness? No, everybody knows you're walking in darkness. We lie in saying we have fellowship, communion, partnership, koinonia with him because we do not practice the truth. But if we allow him to live his life through us, if we walk in the light, well, to what degree? As he's in the light, then we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Note, we are in Christ or in the light. And if you're a believer and have been regenerated, this is who you are. And therefore, we must walk or live as children of light. This is the verse that talks about that we are children of light. You can look that up later. What it does say is the fact that we are now, present tense, who we are, regenerated, children of the Lord, children of light because we possess the Holy Spirit and we have his very nature, which again is light. And if so, it means that the light inside of you makes you divinely powerful against the ever-encroaching evil of the darkness around you. Oh, no, no, it's really tough out there. I mean, the government can do this, and you know, the media's going to do this, and the school system's going to do this, and Hollywood's going to do this, and you know, my friends are doing this, and oh, it's just terrible. Oh, just take me, Jesus. I don't want this anymore. No, you have light, light, and who's inside of you dispels their darkness. Jesus said that we're supposed to let our light shine so everyone will see the good deeds and glorify the Father and not take this light and put it up under a bushel so it's just for us and nobody else. That's not why God made us who he is. In John 3, 16, you know those passages about Jesus coming and redeeming us, but if you'll continue reading verse 17 and 18 all the way to verse 20, it talks about the reason why. Here's what he says. Talks about the fact that if we believe in him, we're not condemned. Condemned, that's that's a really tough word. Yeah, and the word means to be judged from a legal system as guilty with punishment. But if we don't believe, we're condemned already because we haven't believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Well, what does this condemnation look like? What, what What are you saying, Lord? Well, it's simply this. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world. Oh, it's light and darkness again. It's always light and darkness. Light has come into the world. 
But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So much so that everyone who lives, who's lost, who's not regenerated, who practices evil, hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. I'm going to run away from the light. I want nothing to do with the light. So it's the light that's powerful. I shine the light, they run. They run. It's like Jesus talked about, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. They don't want to come to the light. They don't want to be exposed to the light. They don't want you as a messenger of the life, light in their life. But we, he who does the truth, comes to the light. We want to come to the light because it, it shows that what we're doing is to glorify the Lord. We're energized by the light, that we surrender to the light, that we belong to him. It's this light and dark battle. So um, how, do we, uh, how do we fight? How do we fight against the darkness? Um, to encourage you, it says in John 1 that in him, in Christ, was life, who now lives in you. And the life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. Terrible word translated into English. Comprehend means, I don't understand it, which, by the way, is true. But if you look at the definition of that, it means that the darkness does not overtake it. The darkness does not overpower it. The darkness does not defeat it. The darkness does not gain control over the light because the light comes from God through the Holy Spirit who lives in you and greater is the light in you than any darkness at all. If we could just learn that it's not the darkness we should fear, it's not the problem, it's not the darkness who's going to continually get darker and darker, but it's the fact that we have a light that we've kept under a bushel because we're afraid to let it shine and dispel the darkness. Instead, what we do is we try to fight against the darkness humanly. Well, we'll talk about politics. I mean, what's going on in Washington is absolutely terrible. We need to do this and that and the other and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, as soon as we elect these people and everything will change and we need to get that guy out of office and these Supreme Court justices, don't get me wrong, there's a positive element towards that. We can spend all our energy fighting people that getting angry and raging about it, trying to manipulate and scheme and work things out in such a way that somehow we're going to let light come into the world but not through the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way. Have you ever noticed politically that it really doesn't matter who's in office, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, that nothing ever changes? Nothing. The only time anything ever changed in my lifetime was way back when Ronald Reagan was president and when Donald Trump was president. And they hate him for doing that. Hate him for doing that. Nothing ever changes. Fighting the wrong way. What we need to do, the best way for us to fight, is to surrender our life to him and to pray. He promises to fight our battles for us. He promises to, and I was, I was looking this week at scriptures about God fighting our battles for us. The Old Testament is just chock full of those, and the New Testament has all those principles. I could spend two hours just sharing those passages with you. You know, they... they Red Sea parts and 
all of a sudden, you know, all the Israelites are on one side and, and you know, the, the Egyptians are coming and Moses is getting scared and he looks up at the Lord and what are we supposed to do? And God just says, be quiet and watch and let me fight for you. And then all of a sudden, the amazing thing happens. I mean, God gets glory in protecting his kids, just like you are a good father and a mother by protecting your children. He does exactly the same way. And there are some amazing promises that he has for us, for those that uh, allow him to uh, fight the battle for us. I just looked at Romans chapter 8, and I started looking at some of the questions that are asked. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Uh, If it's God's elect, no one. No one. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Your sin? The things that you're so ashamed of? Satan? The darkness? Nothing. And then you list all these terrible things that can happen to humans, you know, persecuted and and hungry and all those kind of things. And it says, and even in all those things, we are not just conquerors. We're not survivors. We're not hanging on by our fingertips, you know, hoping the rapture will hurry up and come. Lord Jesus, just take me. Instead, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us because we have the light in us, the powerful light of the Holy Spirit. I've been sharing this with you for two years. How do we get more of the light? How do we yield more of ourselves to the light? How do we open up dark areas in our life so that the light of Christ will shine? When do we open up those doors and let his light just illuminate all the darkness inside? It all comes from surrender. Surrender. The more I yield to him, the more he fills me, the more he fills me, the more light he has. I mean, it's a simple process, but it's very difficult to do because it's almost like when you surrender to him, part of you dies. I want to surrender my choice of a spouse to you, God. I want you to choose it for me. Then you don't worry about it anymore. (sighs) What if God gives me somebody I won't like? Yeah, that's just what God does, doesn't he? You know? What if he gives her somebody she doesn't like? I mean, the fact is, is, you know, I I surrender my life to him, and every time I do, part of me dies. And we're so afraid to let go of the darkness in our heart to trust him with that, that that we struggle. And we usually, for most people, we usually reach a certain plateau where we're not going to go any further. I could be, the Bible uses hot and cold. I'll use light and darkness. I used to be really dark, but I should be bright, but I'm kind of dim in the middle because there's some areas I don't want to give up, and I'm okay just being in the shadows when he's ordained me to be over here hot for him rather than cold. Instead, I'm lukewarm, and I think that's okay because it's as far as my faith goes. I, I can't trust him anymore. And what happens is we become nauseating to the Lord, nauseating to the people that we know, and probably nauseating to yourself. How many times have you prayed, God, why do I keep doing the same thing over again? I mean, if there's a lesson to learn, can't you help me learn? I mean, Lord, why? Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Or if we've moved to the point where we can be lukewarm and it not bother us, that's a serious problem. That's a scary problem. Here's how surrender works. James says, therefore, submit to God. Okay, and if I do then Satan's going to come at me. Yeah, he is. If you submit to the light, 
to have the light shine brighter in your life, yes, the darkness is going to try to overcome you. But he says this, all I have to do is resist. I don't have to defeat. I have to just resist the darkness, resist the devil. And God will make him flee. Oh, so it's not, it's not me? No. You and I, you and I are powerless to a fallen archangel. But with Christ in us, we are divinely powerful. You realize that? You don't fight Satan in the strength that you have. He'll crush you. He's been at it a long time. He knows every weakness that you have. But we yield and surrender to him. And he promises us if we just resist the devil, that he will force him to flee. 1 John 4, 4 says this. You're of God, little children. Oh, the Father speaking to us as a little child. Okay. And have overcome them. And if you look at the context, he's talking about super darkness here, the spirit of Antichrist. How have I overcome him? It's really simple. Because greater is he who is in you than he that's in the world. Greater is your light than any darkness out there. So how do we do that? Well, most powerful weapon we have is prayer. Problem is, most of us struggle with prayer. We don't really know how to pray. We pray, we think prayer is something that we're always asking for something to do. Listen, what I didn't say is the most powerful weapon we have is preaching. Because some of you would go, oh, no, I, 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 I can't preach. I, um, I, I, just, I don't know what to say, and I'm really shy and insecure, and so then uh, choose something else. Okay, well, the, uh, the most powerful weapon we have is worship. Oh, no, 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 you don't want me to sing. When I sing, the demons rejoice. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, we not, I don't want to do that. Okay, so it's uh, evangelism. No, 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 I'm just, I'm, I, I really can't do that. And Okay, well, what can you do? What can everybody do? What can somebody in the height of their physical health or some are quadriplegic in a wheelchair do? Same thing. They can pray. They can pray. We kind of put all the emphasis on the outward but God puts it on the inward. They can pray. It requires no degree. You don't have to have any special gifts. All you have to do is pray. And the Bible says in Romans 8 that even if you don't know how to pray, and I struggle with praying, that the Holy Spirit will pray through you in ways and in words you won't even understand. God wants us to pray so much that he, the light inside of us will pray for us until we learn how to pray on our own. which is amazing. And if we don't know how to do that, all we have to do is simply ask. Now, here's the point of what I want to share with you. There is a spiritual dimension that um, sometimes we have a tendency of not really embracing or understanding. When regeneration takes place, something mysterious happens. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. I mean, we accept that as truth, and we write it down on a term paper, but have we ever really understood what that process is like? What that means? God out there somehow decides to live in here with you. Not a part of God, but God himself. It's not like God's divided up into a billion different pieces, so you have one billionth of God, and that one billionth lives in you, so you only have access to one billionth of who he is. It doesn't talk about that. 
Instead, everything that God is is now given to you. And what he wants in return is all of you given to him. And believe me, I know who I am. I know who he is. It's a really good deal. I mean, I give him chump change, and he gives me Fort Knox. I mean, it, it, it's amazing. So because there's this spiritual dimension that takes place, what it means is that inside of you now lives two people. You have what's called the old man and the new man. Paul talks about that. You have the old man of the flesh, the old man that does things he, the way he wants to do. In my situation growing up, I survived by lying convincingly. Somebody would, my first response when somebody would come to me and say, hey, did you do this? Even if I wanted to tell the truth, my first knee-jerk response was to deflect it on somebody else or to gaslight it or to say, I didn't do it. Um, you know, and, and then, I would, then I would convince, I would convince with this really elaborate story why it couldn't possibly be me, it was Tim. And so, which is probably true, but anyway, it's Tim. That's why we're born on the same day, right? Anyway, so uh, that's, that's, that's the old man, the old man. And a new man comes in, and the old man is buried, and all of a sudden is raised to a newness of life, and now the new Steve is supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ but he still digs up the old man and holds on to the old man a little bit because sometimes it's easier than just trust. And as we move in sanctification, we're to become more like Christ and less like us. True? So what Satan does is Satan attacks you by encouraging you to dig up the old man, to dress yourself again with the grave clothes that Jesus told Lazarus to ditch when he was raised from the dead. And so I'm going to go back and do the things that I used to do that didn't work because I'm too tired or I'm too lazy or I don't really care enough to just trust more. So there's a battle that goes on with yourself about you know these attacks of Satan. It's what he says. Finally, my brethren, Ephesians chapter 6, and you've very familiar with this. I just want to show you how to apply it to your life. Finally, my brethren, be strong in your own strength. Be strong in your ability to say no. Be strong in your, your capability as a man or a woman to just grit and bear it and defeat it on your own so that when you're victorious, you get all the glory, right? No. Be strong in the Lord. And in the Deutimus, explosive power of his might, and not your own. He wants to fight our battles for us. He is light, and we're surrounded by darkness that is only getting darker. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. How do I do that, God? Can you show me what to do? Sure. I'm going to give you a command, and I'm going to tell you the reason why. Sometimes in Scripture, God just gives a command, and we have to just trust him by faith. Sometimes he gives a command and tells us why, because he knows our faith is going to be weak, and we're going to ask these questions. So here's the command. Put on the whole armor, not of Steve, not of Tim, not of Jeanette, not of anybody, but of God. So you have armor? Yeah, armor. Armor. That I'm putting on the defensive and offensive weapons of God, because we're in a battle. 
It's a battle between light and darkness. And our enemy is very cunning. Our enemy is very experienced at what he's doing. And if we take our power, our light, and keep it under a bushel, he will defeat us every single time. But if we put on the power of God and are strong in his might and his power, wearing his armor, you are invincible against the enemy. And you can be a powerful tool in God's hand to do anything he wants through you. Why do I put on the full armor of God? Can you explain that to me, God? Sure, that you may be able to stand, just stand against the wiles of the devil. That word means schemes, deceit, and trickery because he is a slimy dog. I mean, he will hit you in ways that you don't even know Uh, he's coming and he will take your greatest weakness or even your greatest strength and turn it against you. He's not original. I mean, it's not like he comes up with all these new plans. He knows what works and he's very experienced at it and he will come at you. He will come at you the same way every single time that you allow him to. I've shared with you this before. It was the biggest lesson I ever learned in my life was the fact that I give Satan the clubs to beat me with. Lord, I'll trust you about anything. And then all of a sudden, I have a bill that I can't pay. Oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do? You know, I'm going to sell this or do this, and I'm worried and I'm fretting about it. And all of a sudden, things are all messed up. And oh, oh, so Steve struggles with financial worries. You know what you're going to get? Financial worries. Steve struggles with being accepted by his friends. Ah, you know what you're going to get? Attacks that way. It's like I hand Satan the club and say, I'm really, I'm weak in this area spiritually. Satan going, hit me again, hit me again, hit me again. And not realize that you are divinely powerful in him. Every temptation that we have, and by the way, temptation is not a sin. Every temptation we have, he provides a way out. Why is our battle not against Washington? Why is our battle not against my coworker? Why is my battle not against the legal system or whatever we struggle with? It's really simple. The big picture is this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You know these verses. The word wrestle means to struggle in hand-to-hand combat. This is a, this is a tough battle here. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood each other, human institutions, anything like that. But against principalities, powers, rulers of this dark age, against spiritual hopes of wickedness in the heavenly places. I could take time and define those for you, but I assume by just reading those, you realize this is the dark demonic forces. I am not struggling against Bob. I'm struggling with the power behind Bob. I don't want to spend my life dealing with symptoms like Bob. Instead, I want to go right to the core and be able to fight spiritual battles, spiritual ways. So how do I do that? Well, he lays it out for us. He gives us a command. Therefore, based on the fact that I'm not struggling against flesh and blood, I'm to take up the whole armor of God, all of it. The offensive part and the defensive part. I'm to put on God's armor. And by the way, this is something that you can actually do spiritually. This is something that, um, I mean, I, I preached on this, I don't know, 10 years ago. Um, it's something that will revolutionize your spiritual life if you'll realize that there's a spiritual dimension to everything that we do. You have you, your spirit man, and the scripture simply tells you to put on his armor. Uh, like 
like, like is he's going to give me like a physical belt? <sighs> now we're back to John chapter 3. You know, it's, it's not physical, it's spiritual. Born again is not something physical that takes place. It's something spiritual that takes place. Putting on his armor is not something that you physically do. It's something that you spiritually do to empower your inner man to take a stand against the enemy, to let your light shine bright. The reason why we do that is simple, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all just to stand you know, when Satan comes at you, when things get darker, I mean, your job is to stand. Your job's not to advance. If you're just standing, like the Francis Scott Key song, you know, and the flag is still there after the... If you're still standing, it's a great victory because everything Satan throws at you, you're standing there and you're taking it and you're, you're winning. The light is winning in you. So here's how we do it. There are seven pieces of spiritual armor. You know this. You've looked at these verses. I put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. I, my feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I, I have the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. And I've got all these things, and they're all listed here. As a matter of fact, um, let's read those together in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of this darkness, of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Then it talks in verse 14 about putting it on. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, having your feet, or having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above, el- above all, take on the shield of faith in which, we- which you will quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray always. And then it goes on. Pray always. I want to show you how this is done. Um, and I want to encourage you to incorporate it into your life. This is not some crazy stuff. It is actually real, and it will actually transform you and protect you by putting this armor on. By the way, it's all done by prayer. It's all done by faith. It's all done in the Spirit. And the way you do it is simply in prayer. When I'm getting ready to put on my spiritual armor, I will... um, I'll tell the Lord that's exactly what I want to do. And I actually, when I do this in my own mind, I do it in a different order. Uh, I do the, the, the belt and the breastplate and the helmet because that's where I get attacked a lot. Then the feet and then the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. And, but when you put it on, you simply recognize who God is and you pray for what he talks about in this scripture to become real to you. Lord, I uh, want to put on my spiritual armor and I, um, I want to put on the belt of truth. And you imagine it, belt of truth. I mean, what, what is that? In a Roman soldier, they had a tunic and they had a belt. And that belt, and they had a tunic, just like a long robe went down. And, and they had this belt that kind of tied everything together. In the belt, of course, is where they hung their sword. And so the belt is the, the part that just kind of ties everything together to allow someone to go into battle. So I'm putting on that belt. Lord, I'm asking you to help me put on this belt of truth. And Lord, you are the truth. 
I mean, you're the way, the truth, and the life. You've given me your word. You've shown me exactly what the rules are in your kingdom. You've placed me in this world to live by your truth and your light. And Lord, I haven't. I apologize for, for believing other truth other than you, believing maybe that my way of understanding things are better than your way, believing that my, the rules that I've come up with in this world for finances or acceptance or stuff of that nature are okay. Lord, the, you've said that bad company corrupts good character, but I haven't held on to that truth and I've hurt myself because of that or the love of money or whatever it is. And you acknowledge him for the truth that he is. And Lord, from here on out, I want to follow your truth your guidance. Show me exactly what you want me to do, which may mean that it leads you to study your Bible more and to pray more and to not lean on your own uh, understanding and not listen to the voices in your head. And you put on that belt of truth, just praying, praying in spirit. And when you feel peace with that, you put on the next piece. Lord, I want to put on your breastplate of righteousness. That breastplate covers my heart. It covers my lungs. It covers my vital organs. And Lord, your breastplate of righteousness is what protects my heart. The scripture says that my heart is deceitfully wicked. My heart has led me astray. My heart wants me to do things that I shouldn't really be doing. My heart is clamoring for other things other than you. My heart and anything other than you was unrighteousness. Lord, would you protect my heart? by letting me focus on your righteousness because you said that, that I have your righteousness imputed to me and when I go to heaven, God doesn't let me in based on my righteousness but on your righteousness and you begin praising him for that and when you feel satisfied or content or you feel a peace and you move on to the next one. This one talks about your feet in the gospel of peace and I'm not suggesting that you go in a different order than it's in scripture. I'm just telling you that I do. Because where I get attacked the most is my brain, my head, and my mind. And so I want that helmet of salvation that guards my mind, that, that lets me have the mind of Christ, that I'm being conformed to his image, that doesn't let me doubt his word and, and helps my faith grow. And Lord, I'm, I'm covering my head, which has my brain, my, my thinking, the way I want to do it. That's, that's how I function. I'm not an emotional guy. I'm a cognitive guy. And I th that many times I will think in my brain and ask myself, something has happened. How should I feel about that? Some of you who are more emotional, breastplate of righteousness, you feel it first and go, why do I feel that way? With me, it's the exact opposite. I put on that helmet of salvation and pray exactly the same prayer. Lord, would you guard my heart? Would you guard my mind in you? Would you not let me think thoughts that aren't yours? Would you, would, you, uh, would you bring my brain and my thought life into submission to you? Would you let me realize that you're sad, that I'm saved, that I belong to you? Would you let the, the ramifications of that and the blessings of that become real to me? It's a helmet of salvation. God, you live in me. God, you chose me. God, you're building a place so I can be spend eternity with you. What is this in front of me right now that compared to what you've already done based on my salvation? And you pray. You're worshiping the whole time you're doing it. You're reiterating truth to God. And then all of a sudden, when you feel that peace or that release, okay, the piece of armor is on. You move on to the next one. Peace, in the way I do it, the feet shod with the gospel, preparation of peace. And you know what? I need your peace. Why don't I share my faith? Because well, I'm afraid of conflict. Why don't I share my faith? Because I'm worried about too many things. Why don't I share my faith? Because I'm afraid of this. God, give me your peace. Help me be anxious for nothing. Then all of a sudden, God will bring other verses to your mind that will help you solidify and worship as you're getting to know him more by putting on his armor. 
have the shield of faith. When I preached on this about 10 years ago, I talked about the fact that in this particular image here with the Roman soldier, this is called a body shield. I mean, it's a big, like, like five-foot-long shield, about two and a half feet wide, kind of pitch on one side of it so the enemy shot arrows in it. They could hold the shields up, and, and the air, flaming arrows would hit the uh, shield and be extinguished. I mean, this was Paul's imagery when he was writing this. But I find in my own life, sometimes I have a shield the size of a poker chip, and I've got it stuck right there on my forearm. And so I'm out here fighting with this shield of faith, but my faith is so small that I'm getting beat to death. Well, what's the deal, Lord? Well, I provided for you everything. It's called a shield of faith. And when your faith is placed in me, when you trust me and your faith grows, and I've got this body shield or this cone over me, then, uh, then the promise is that every flaming arrow, fiery dart, everything Satan will throw my way will be stopped and extinguished by faith. My faith is weak. When I put that spiritual armor on, I'm asking the Lord to increase my faith. I don't want to go out there in the world with a poker chip sized shield. You know, I'm going, to, I'm, going to get, I'm going to get beat to death. Well, Steve, what do you need to do? I need to trust. I need to believe. I need to not use my own brain and do it my own way or work out contingencies. I need abject faith in you. So you put that armor on, and when you have that shield of faith, you pick up the offensive weapon, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God that we hopefully have spent our time studying. That's why I asked you today, where are you guys studying in the Word? And I know for some reason in our culture, men don't like to talk. I'm not sure why that is, but you know what, I'm, what I've been praying for is that whenever I ask that question, somebody, yeah, let me tell you, let me tell you what I've been doing. Look, I was looking at the book of Ephesians, and all of a sudden I saw this, and it was absolutely incredible. God has changed my life with that. Such an inspiration to the rest of us in here when that happens. And maybe my faith needs to grow. The shield of faith and the offensive weapon, the word of God, and, and what undergirds it all is prayer. Prayer. I do want you to look at verse 18, and I'm going to close with this. By verse 17, it says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always, always, with all prayer and supplication, note the next phrase, in the Spirit. Oh, so it's not my, now I lay me down to sleep prayers. It's not my, oh, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, and uh, thank you for giving us the freedom to be able to worship here, and thank you for like taking care of everything. And you know the same prayers I pray every day? No. No, it's in the Spirit. I just put on spiritual armor on the spirit man. I'm just engaging myself and preparing myself to go out into the world as light, the Spirit in me, against darkness. And when I pray, I pray in the Spirit. I pray energized by the Spirit. I pray inspired by the Spirit, overwhelmed by the Spirit. And when I do, everything changes. These are the verses we just looked at. I do want to close simply with this. Problem today with the world right now, your life, my life, the lives we're going to raise our children in is not the ever-encroaching darkness. It is the lack of light. And I do want to close with this. I would like all the children in here to stand, if you would. If you're under the age 18, just stand.
Okay. Now, this is not for you guys. Thank you. Adults, I want you to look around at the kids that are in here. They need a different world. They need us to be light. They need, they need us to leave them a better place than we inherited because we have not done well with what we've been entrusted. You guys just sit down now. If you don't want to do it for you, do it for them. Do it for your children and your grandchildren. I mean, the fact is, we're the ones in charge, adults. We're the parents. We're the grandparents. We're soon-to-be parents or grandparents. They're not. They're looking to us for leadership. And the world is telling them not to look at us for leadership because we're not leaders. We're stupid buffoons. And we're living that in front of them many times spiritually. We have to become the light. And they will learn to become the light from seeing us be the light. And the way we need to do this is by surrendering and trusting him more. And you can begin that process today. You can begin that process right now. When you go home, take this word out and pray. Pray and put the armor on. And once you've begun doing that a couple days in a row and begin experiencing the joy that comes spiritually from just going through that exercise, it'll become part of your regular devotion time. You know, pray and realize that, you know, the authority you have in you is delegated by Christ, but it's greater than anything Satan throws your way. Whenever we ever get together, whenever I ever do anything, you know, I always pray and I ask him, not me, I'm nothing. I ask him to take authority over the enemy and would you make the enemy flee? Because if I resist the devil, God will make him go. And so do that in your own life. Do that in your own life. Seal that decision by pleading and asking him to cover you with his blood, to wash you clean in the spirit, man, for who you are by the blood of Christ. On the top of my head, all the way down to, the, to my feet, and to put on that spiritual armor, and then go out there and be light. Be light. Be invincible in the world. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. Maybe they're waiting on you. Maybe our kids are waiting on us. Maybe before it gets too crazy out there, somebody needs to be a disruptor and somebody needs to stand in the gap. And maybe that person is you. Maybe that person is me. And let's be the light that we're to be in Christ. Amen? Let me pray.